This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Katherine Hill Brown of Byrne. She has written a coming-of-age novel, The Summer Girl, that is more like Anne Frank's diary than a Nancy Drew mystery, although the novel refers to and has elements of each. Her novel tells the story of two girls from different cultures who become fast friends, despite prejudice, from both of their families. The novel is set in a fading resort town, known for its healthful waters. Hill Brown says the setting is based on Sharon Springs, New York, where she spent much of her girlhood. Hill Brown was an only child and wondered what if she had become friends with one of the Jewish summer visitors. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm very happy to be with you here today and and doing this podcast. Um, And thank you for featuring my book. And so I'm going to be reading um, from early on in the book, actually, chapter two. Um, uh, This is from the perspective of the main character. Her name is Sonia Brooks. And this essentially gives you the setting and the time period and pretty much everything you need to know about the book is in this this one little um, chapter. I will start. Um, I'm stretched out on our scratchy old plaid sofa on the front porch. It's raining and the pool is closed, so today I'm crocheting granny squares. Mom taught me over spring break while other kids went on cruises or flew to sunny places, but we had fun anyways. I'm using the psychedelic rainbow-colored yarn that changes from yellow to red to purple to blue. It's fun because no two squares come out the same. Raindrops strike the metal porch roof. Ting, ting, ting. I try and chain stitch to the beat. Meredith is home for lunch. She usually stops by after breakfast after her breakfast shift ends at the Rosemont, and before the baths open at Astor's, another hotel where she works as a bath attendant, getting hot packs ready for customers who want a massage. She says she has to take these giant metal tweezers and dip cloth bundles into a vat of boiling hot sulfur water. Then she places the packs on the customers who are naked, except for two little towers towels that cover their private places. It doesn't sound like much fun, but she swears the tips are good, she walks onto the porch and tosses the day's newspaper on the cushion next to me. On the front page is a picture of a boarding house downstreet that burned last summer. The headline reads, Another Summer of Arson? Thought you might like to put this in your scrapbook, says Meredith. She plops down on the beanbag chair. Just about every summer, at least one of the big old buildings in town, usually hotels, catches fire. My family has kept a scrapbook of all the fires going back to the early 1900s. We call it the fire book. It's kind of a big deal because Dad's on the volunteer fire department and his dad was before him and so on. He tried to get Meredith interested in taking over the tradition because she's the oldest, but she snubbed her nose at it. So I've been the one updating the pages instead. I like doing it, but I won't tell Meredith that. You know, they're looking for a light switcher down at the Rosemont, she says, as she thumbs through a Tiger Beat magazine. Oh, yeah, I reply. A light switcher is how Meredith started out at the Rosemont Hotel Downstreet. You go around on the Sabbath and turn everyone's lights on and off. The Jews aren't supposed to touch anything electric after sunset on Friday until sunset on Saturday. Yep, she snaps her gum and turns the page. I can see the Bay City rollers on the cover and their song Saturday Night starts playing in my head. 
S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y night. Guess I'll never forget how to spell that day of the week. Are you interested, she asked. Huh? The thought of having an actual job never occurred to me. Earth to Sonia, are you there? This time Meredith snaps her fingers, not her gum. She's always like that, picking on me and stuff. I don't know. I picture myself going from room to room, turning on lights for Jewish strangers. It's kind of an odd thing to do. Meredith flips the tiger beat shut and stands up. Like Dad says, money don't go on, grow on trees. You better think about it fast. I need to let Mr. Belder know by tomorrow. She skips down the steps and dashes to her car, holding the magazine over her head to keep the rain off. I put down my crochet hook and stare out at the wet pavement. The rain has already been, it's been steady all day, and the puddles make the cars on our street slow down. I wonder if I could work for the Jews. They seem different. I remember holding my mother's hand as we walked down the street to the library for story time. I must have been about four or five. We always passed this one street that dipped down into a little hollow. These Jewish kids were there every time we passed. They played stickball and tag. They laughed and chased each other just like we did. I remember thinking it would be fun to join them. Can I go play, I asked, pointing down the street. I don't think so, honey, my mother said as she pressed her hand into mine. But why do they dress like that, I asked. Well, they believe God wants them to. And why do they take baths in the stinky water? Mm, it has something to do with their religion, sweetie. Well, why don't the Jew kids play with us, I asked. Sonia, I'm not really sure why the Jewish children don't play with you, but I think it's because of their beliefs. Now, no more questions. She told me along, but I looked back. I still vividly remember their laughter, high and piercing and full of joy. The whole thing didn't make much sense, because I really didn't see much difference between us. But that was years ago. Ting, ting, ting. Chain stitch, chain stitch, chain stitch. The rain falls faster, and I try to keep up. It seems like everyone has some, something to do and someone to do it with, except me. Meredith is, is off to work. Mom is busy inside calling her Avon clients, and Dad is out driving trucks. And I still haven't heard from Kelly. I bet she's having such a great time in Oregon that she's forgotten all about me. The only person who has shown a speck of interest in my summer is William. Ugh. Being alone on a porch in a rainstorm somehow makes decisions easy. I'm going to take that stupid job. A little money in my pocket will be nice. I can buy as many Swedish fish as I want. I can buy my own Tiger Beat magazine instead of reading my sister's wet, wrinkled copies. Maybe even save up for a pair of roller skates. The more I think about it, the better it sounds. After all, how hard is it to turn a light on and off? That's wonderful. And you're right. That passage tells us a lot about the book. It puts us right there in the mid-70s. It introduces the whole cast of characters, the mothers selling Avon, the father who's careful with money, and William who's a sort of distant future romantic interest, Kelly the best yeah. friend who's away. So, Kathy, how how is it that you gave birth to this book. How is it that you thought of this book? What what was the origin of it? Okay, um, well, uh, it's certainly, as a writer of fiction, a lot of times, you know, the old adage, you write what you know is true. And so I spent many years as a young person in a town nearby here um, called Sharon Springs. So that is the town which this book is kind of modeled after. It's modeled after my experiences there in the mid-1970s. Um, so it, it's kind of, uh, you might say it's my what-if book. 
Uh, I'm an only child, so I didn't have a Meredith in my life as a big sister, and um, I didn't have a lot of playmates really living in the country. So I remember as a young child back in the 70s that there were a lot of um, Jewish, Hasidic Jewish um, people there. During the summer, they would come up from New York City, and I remember seeing lots of kids playing, and I always thought, well, it would be fun to make friends with one of these you know, girls. And But it never happened, of course. But so that's where the seed germinated in my mind. But it wasn't until I was actually an adult that I realized what a unique situation and experience that I had lived through in the 70s in that town during that time. So, and then as an adult, having kids of my own, I just one day thought, wow, this would be a really great story if I created, you know, a fictional tale about it. Yeah, and I'm... I'm pleased to hear where the specificity came from, because it was amazing to me. I'm a bit older than you, so I was just out of college in in 1976 when this book is set. But so Mm -hmm. many of the touchstones in the book are real. (laughs) I mean, the TV shows that you Uh mentioned, the music that you mentioned, the, the teenage girl talking about... Seventeen magazine, <laughs> just, just yeah. There's so many things that feel so real to that era. It it puts you there, and it's odd now, in 2020, to look back and feel almost nostalgic about that time because living through it, it didn't seem that way at all. It seemed like on the cutting edge with the Vietnam War protests yeah. and the, the mm-hmm. civil rights movements, but just the way you captured that moment in time. Um, just tell us a little about your writing process. Um, how okay. how did you start with a plot? Because that is an amazing um, coming together of these different threads all tied up in okay. one knot at the end. Right. Well, um, yeah, that's, I always wondered that too, actually, to be honest with you. How did I put it all together? Um I am definitely a plotter in the sense that, like, in, in fiction, you have these two groups, the plotters and the pansters. They call themselves the pansters, where it's just, you know, you fly by the seat of your pants, and you just start with an idea, and you just write, you know, and it flows, and you don't know where it's headed. Well, I'm not one of those people. I, I definitely have to know where my novel ends up, because otherwise I just don't, I don't know how I could write it. So I definitely plot. I have a beginning, I have an, and an end. And what I have done is piece together the middle. And, of course, you always have the story arc, you know, with the climax and all that. It's your, you know, your typical story arc. But within it are all these scenes. And so what I found is when I wrote, I would do, of course, for this book, I did a lot of research. Um, I, I read a lot. I actually, you know, went and, and, and went through archive old newspaper clippings. I did um, first-hand, uh, first-person research, um, so I did a lot. I have relatives who actually worked in the Baths and Sharon Springs back then, so I, I interviewed them. Um, so when you're doing all this research, you come up with these, um, we come up with information or tidbits of information or scenes or something, and they can actually, you can tweak them, and, and they'll fit in your book. But of course, you change things, and you, you string them all together. And you, of course, have scenes that come up in your own mind, if you're in your own imagination, obviously. But I think it was piecing them together, and what I would too, is if I had a scene that I thought would really work, or a, or a fraction of a scene, just something that happened, I would put it on a post-it note, 
And then I would re I went to a hotel one time for uh, like a writer's, a, a writer's getaway. And I had the whole wall just covered with post-it notes. And what I did is I rearranged them until it made sense. That's pretty much how I did it. Wow. <laughs> That's a fascinating process. So it's like literal physical pieces of a puzzle and you're moving them around to get them to fit into this picture yeah. that you have. Wow. Because I don't want to give away too much of the plot because we might have potential readers out there that want to be surprised as I was, you know, it's a page turner in some senses, this book. But um, the thing that really interested me is it isn't just a plot-driven book. I mean, there are references throughout to Nancy Drew because Sonia, mm-hmm. um, the the lead who we see the story unfold through her eyes has given up Nancy Drew. <laughs> you know, she's moved on in her yes. life. But yeah. um, there is that there are elements of that kind of solving a mystery um, that are very mm-hmm. important to the book. But at the same time, layered in, and to me, the far more important thing than the plot was this personal growth, this coming of age that wasn't just mm-hmm. with the boy interest, but really was understanding common humanity. Um, This theme of anti-Semitism, for me, rose, had the book rise up to a new level of um, worth. So if you could just talk a little about um, how how you fit that in and why that became so central to the book. Um, Mm, Okay. Right. Well, I think in any story you want your your character has flaws um and then hopefully they overcome their flaws and they learn something and they become a better person i think that's a very common theme in stories and so i did want to have that as part of this story and and it is a coming of age story and specifically sonia herself um um deals with a couple big issues in it um one anti-Semitism, realizing that anti-Semitism does exist in her town, and it is very, it is prevalent, but I have to say that although this book is based in part on Sharon Springs and my experiences there, I honestly can tell you that I never really thought any anti-Semitism, that's not to say it didn't exist, but at the time, I didn't see it, feel it, experience it. Of course, I'm a local, you know, white girl, um, you know, Gentile, and, uh, I just, it wasn't something that that I recognized or saw. So it it certainly was not nearly as prevalent at all as it is in my fictional tale. I just want to get that out there. Um, So, yeah, so the question was, you want somebody to change and to grow. So she does that in the sense that um, she does break away from her father, um, and she, you know, in this way that she's actually befriended um, a Jewish girl who comes up and visits from from the city. And at the start of the book, we, we realize that her father is, is anti-Semitic and does, you know, bear some um, uh, bad feeling towards the Jewish population. Um, and you, I delve more of that in the book. But it's not a heavy-handed lesson. That wasn't really what I set out to do. I did want to tell a story, and it did kind of evolve as I did more research into the book itself. Um, 
So I, I you know, it delves into it, but it, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. Uh, it brings it up as an issue, and I think it's it's pulled together in the end in a very, in a very good way. I guess. Yeah, um, that that and without revealing too much of the plot, um, just tell us a little about the character Ruthie, who is um, the Jewish girl that and first their first meeting, um, Ruthie and Sonia is through the um, the fence at the public pool <laughs> where Sonia yeah. comes over in her bikini and is like, why are you staring at us? Why don't you take a picture kind of thing? And Ruthie yeah, is right. um, equal to the challenge. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. not like they immediately hit it off there. There's an antagonism there. Um, but just tell us a little about how you developed both Ruthie and her grandmother, who is a really, I think, pivotal character in the book, um, both in terms of the plot and in terms of the idea that um, prejudice can go both ways. Um, right. You know, she mm-hmm. really feels that Sonia is a bad influence on her granddaughter. Right. So just tell Absolutely. us a little about developing that character. Okay, well, Sonia, um, because actually Sonia, obviously I had to have her character in the book, but I wasn't, I didn't have her really fleshed out until I had read a lot of, um, I'd read quite a few books about teenage girls living in, you know, the Hasidic culture and religion and um, from their viewpoint. And there's a lot of them, especially today, I'm not so sure about how it was back in the 70s, but today they're, they're quite funky and they have their you know own attitudes about things. And, and, and um, so I took some of that, you know, spunk and, and liveliness and I kind of channeled it into Ruthie's character Um you know, I, I think she's a great character. While she really, she really is very interested and curious about, you know, the world out there, she also is extremely respectful of her culture and her religion and her family. So you see her being intrigued by Sonia's makeup and um, the party scene and all that, but yet she sticks. You know, it's, it's, in the end, she really sticks to who she is fundamentally, um, like, you know, kosher food and that sort of thing. You know, she, she won't drink any of the Kool-Aid that's offered to her at one point in the book because, you know, it's, it's not kosher and she won't have it. And that's a point where, you know, Sonia's like, what do you mean? What's wrong with you? Why? You're thirsty, you know? So, um, so stuff like that comes up um, and their friendship is tested and they question each other. But then again, their friendship is so strong and, he gets through those times and they have a lot of fun adventures and solve mysteries. And the grandmother, you know, I don't know where she really came from. <laughs> I really don't. Um, maybe from what I imagined she might be. And of course, some research, um, she really just kind of evolved in yeah. my head. The grandmother did. Well, I she's a say. very strong character. Um, there's one night where she has a little too much wine on the Sabbath dinner, and she shares this story of her girlhood. Um, uh, lust is not the right word. Uh, yeah. Had, um, interest in a Gentile piano player at the restaurant that her aunt runs. And... Um, it just opens this little door that, of course, because you're so skilled at weaving things in for your plot, ends up to be very, very important later on. But just for that moment, hearing that story, you really get a sense of someone who 
has defined her life rigidly because she had a moment where she could have stepped outside of what was expected but didn't. And it's just done right. so subtly and, and so well that it, um, it resonates. But I wonder, too, did your research turn up things? Because I had just never known you had the, the manager of the hotel um, talking about, you know, he's worried about business because the young families aren't coming. It's the grandparents with their grandchildren. And he says it's because... Um, after World War II, there were reparations that were paid by the Germans, and Holocaust survivors could could get these baths um, that were therapeutic as part of those reparations. And that's something I was just never aware of. Is that one of the things that you knew or that your research turned up? Or Yeah, well, um, actually, that fact, was, it was pretty common knowledge in Sharon Springs um, because, you know, People would wonder why why are you know why are the why are there Jewish people here and why are why are they you know going to the baths and taking the water and um, you know why are they here you know, why is this, why is there such a big attraction how can they do it how can they come up here and so it's common knowledge that the reason that they were able to afford it and they, and they were able to do that is because they were getting money directly from the German government for war reparations related to you know World War II and the Holocaust yeah and I did research that fact just to make sure and it is true it it is definitely true and yeah and one of the reasons that you know Sharon Springs has had several heydays in its history but that you know being more kind of a heyday in in the 50s to the the, the 80s even was um because of the holocaust survivors but now as they're getting older and there's fewer of them certainly the town it doesn't have nearly the influx as it used to yeah. Well, another thing, too, I, I just felt the shadow of Anne Frank over the book. <laughs> and I just wonder, you oh. have your character, of course, going to the library after there's a scene where um, the two girls, Ruthie and Sonia, are um, washing dishes for a rabbi um, who needed help at the last minute in order to meet whatever the kosher requirements were. And right. They were actually washing there. They were, I think it's tovel. They were toveling the dishes. I, I'm not sure of the term now, but um, yeah, they washed them in, in spring water to pr- prepare them to be used. So it has to be like spring water from the ground. And so that's what they were doing at, at spring. Yeah, so then the rabbi rolls up his sleeves and Sonia sees the tattoo on his arm, which makes her very uncomfortable. She feels like she's seen something she hasn't, and she goes immediately to the library because she knows about the story of the diary of Anne Frank, but hasn't read Mm -hmm. it, and so she got out with a sort of snarky librarian. This is what I love. You have all yeah. these little details along the way. <laughs> They're just, you know, the librarian saying, you know, that isn't Nancy Drew. And um, yeah. so she, she immediately absorbs Anne Frank. And I just wondered then, because I haven't read Anne Frank since I was about Sonia's age. And I just wondered yeah. if that was part of what shaped the book. Because here... They each had an older sister who was sort of mm. more, mm-hmm. oh, at that age when you're a young teenage girl and your sister has a boyfriend <laughs> or something, you, you yeah, see her as sophisticated. Exactly. And, and they both, they, there's so many sort of parallels. I just wondered, 
if that shaped your telling of this story beyond what what it does in the plot, you know, where she reads thinking she's going to find out right. um, specifics of the Holocaust, but instead what she finds out is the humanity um, of a Jewish girl who she finds to be very similar to herself. Right. No, exactly. That's, that's pretty much it. If I didn't read Anne Frank, like, um, and then come up with the ideas for the book. It was pretty much, I read Anne Frank as I was writing the book because I knew I was going to incorporate Anne Frank into the book from Sonia's perspective. But, um, and, and in order for me to do that and, and do it justice, I, I had to reread it. You know, I, I just couldn't just throw it in there and not read it again. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't read it since I was, you know, in, in a teenager. Um, so as I read it, what happened is that I realized how much Sonia and Anne Frank had in common and the fact that they were teenage girls dealing with teenage girls' issues, even though, you know, they were completely in a different time period and in different countries. And, of course, Anne Frank was in such horrible circumstances, but um, they still have the same desires and trials as teenage girls do even today. So it really, it resonated me and, and I did hope I was able to convey that in the novel, even though it, it wasn't part of my creating the story. It kind of just came about. Yeah, as a, well, it's wonderful. A coincidence. It, it resonates. Yeah. It really does. And made me want to get it out of the library and read it again myself, which I haven't done yet. Well, but I, I think everybody should. I yeah. mean, we, we forget, we know what she's, you know, obviously famous for and, and what she and her suffering and all that. But then we forget the whole humanity of that she was just a regular girl, you know, and mm-hmm. an amazing writer. I when you read it, you're like, how old is this girl? And she's <laughs> writing this, yeah. And, and I couldn't write that well. I mean, it's astounding how well, how good of a writer Anne Frank was. I mean, just mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, the age is what 16, 15, 16, right. I think. I'm not sure, but. Yeah, yeah. She, she's an incredible writer. Well, also, too, yeah. I had a little whiff for me, just because it was such a pivotal book in my life as coming of age, of um, Huck Finn, you know, where Jim and Huck are on the raft, and Huck has been taught his whole life to hate blacks, and um, he just says, all right, then I'll go to hell because he's decided mm, Jim okay. is his friend. And you have that moment of reckoning in the book, but in a way, it it comes off easy. You expect the father when Sonia is, you've made the father into a real person, not just like Nancy Drew's father, who is the stick character oh, yeah. that Gibson <laughs> would needed. This is a real person. He has a tear running down his face when he watches the Bicentennial Parade. He's somebody who yeah. has too many beers, you know about that. And he's, you know, he, his daughter knows, she doesn't use the word an- anti-Semitism, but she knows, she comes to understand he has this prejudice and she knows mm-hmm. that he would think it is wrong to have a friendship with a Jewish girl. And right. she's more afraid of telling him that than she is of, you know, telling him that she and Ruthie are breaking into these old hotels to scope them <laughs> yeah, out and take pictures. But when she does, really, that heavy curtain doesn't fall. It It's like the father, I'm not saying he has a transformation, but, um, mm. you know, it it isn't, it, it was a surprise 
which is nice. The book has little surprises along the way. It isn't just like you set out on a course and you think, okay, there's going to be a showdown between the daughter and the father. <laughs> and really, right. really yeah. so just tell us how you handled that moment and why it turned out the way it did. Okay, well, um, so I guess regarding her father and why I portrayed him the way I did is, um, you know, no family is perfect. And um, like it's funny you mentioned Nancy Shrew's family. Well, I guess she she didn't have a mother involved. Right, like no, just a yeah, father. So again, so they're, right. So they're, her family wasn't the, quote, you know, perfect family that you, you know, the nuclear mother, father, daughter, sibling family either. But um, so, so I guess I always find that the most interesting characters are the ones with flaws. And so, like, as a reader, you're always hoping that, you know, they'll somehow overcome the flaws and grow as a person. Um, and so I had that going with her father as well, not just Sonia. Um, so here I made the dad believable, and, and yet we're able to see how he lets go of some of his bigotry when he's confronted by his daughter, um, when he asks the question, and then, or I don't know if he, I forget how it actually goes down, but um, so you have, you know, this character arc with the father. And um, for Sonia, when um, she's faced with telling her dad that she had befriended, you know, a Jewish girl from down the street, um, I think it's kind of like her, her watershed moment because she, she wants so much for her father to be proud of her, um, but yet he holds these values that, that she just finds unacceptable. So um, at the moment that she realizes that she has to make the break from him, metaphorically speaking, um, which I guess is part of, you know, any coming of age story, really. So I think, and I didn't have him get worked up and angry and confrontational with her because I think he made a choice at that moment too, mm -hmm. himself, mm -hmm. um, to allow her the space and maybe to be a little introspective at the same time. Excellent. I just, we're running out of time and I wanted to talk about you as a writer and we got so wrapped up, I did, in talking about the book. But just tell me a little bit about, I know um, Kathy, just so our listeners know, was a reporter at the Altamont Enterprise, an excellent reporter, a prize-winning reporter. And even back then, you were talking about how you wanted to write, I think it was a children's book at that time, but how how is it you became a writer, and what is it that you have in your future to write? Okay. Well, um, I've always loved reading and writing. Um, I, I can't tell you how many projects I've started throughout the years. <laughs> um, this novel, this book is my second manuscript, full manuscript that I've, I've finished in terms of a novel length. I have quite a few picture book manuscripts. And this, this book, The Summer Girl, um, I actually was in talks with a major editor at a major publishing house. You would recognize the name if I told you. That's how close I got to having this published. It got before their marketing team, and it was mixed. So mm. essentially, if you're writing fiction and you get that close to the Holy Grail, everybody, everybody tells you, you have to keep going. Um, and what happened with this book is I was so devastated because I got so close. I put it on the shelf literally for a couple of years, and then my son said, Mom, why, why don't you just self-publish, you know, do that indie publishing thing? And so I said, yeah, you're right. I mean, I wrote this book. I want people to read it. So I did. I did, um, I did KDP, pub KDP Publishing through Amazon. I chose that platform. There's a lot out there. 
and I did all the work. It's a lot of work to put a book out on you know, your own. You're the editor. You're the, you know, the the um, well, I don't know, the art person. And the, it's just a lot of work. Anyways, I did it. So um, right now, I um, I'm doing a little consulting work. I, I do some um, media relations um, and uh, writing for um, some private businesses and nonprofits. And I'm also writing my next book, which they say in the publishing world, your third manuscript is, is the one that actually is your first to get published on average. So this will be my third. And can you tell us that. what it's about? It is just, it's going to be, this time I'm, I'm going further up the age scale, I'm going to be writing a contemporary women's uh, fiction piece. Yep. It's about it's about the art contemporary art market and um, rural Georgia and about a woman who's trying to escape her past, but it, it pulls her back in the end and she finds love. Pretty oh, much it. Wow! I just wonder what goes on in your brain <laughs> that you come up with. <laughs> I mean, is that rooted in any of your own personal experience, or is that just something that? Well, I, my, my father uh, was from Georgia. I spent a couple of years there. And um, so it's another one of these what if things, you know, what if yeah. this happened? You know, I think a lot, all my stories are, I take something in my own personal life and I just extrapolate on it and go, what if? And then there you go. Well, I can't wait until you do have a schedule for writing that. Well, right now I'm doing research, and um, so that pretty much means um, reading about the art world right now, which I really don't know much about. So I'm, I'm reading about um, contemporary art, conceptual art masterpieces, the auction houses, dealers, collectors, all that stuff. I'm learning about it. Um, and then once that's in place, then I will start plotting out the scenes and stuff. And then I will start writing. And I might participate in NaNoWriMo. You know what that is? National writing, national fiction, no, NaNo. Oh, shoot. November, darn it. Well, anyways, you should look it up. It's NaNoWriMo. And it's this worldwide November month of writing. And you're supposed to be able to crank out a novel in a month. <laughs> and it's, it's this amazing thing that's supported. There's chapters in, in the Capital District. I mean, and it's just this great support group for writing a novel in a month. So, so November is coming. You're going to have your research done, and you're going to sit down and not leave your chair. for What do you do, a keyboard? Sure. Do you write on a keyboard? Is that how you write? Or I, Yeah, I have a laptop. Mm-hmm. You're not going to yep. leave your laptop for the month of November. Well, just briefly, <laughs> what was your first manuscript? What was the first novel about? Oh, okay. Um Darn, that one was, I wrote that many years ago, and um, it was about a girl who um, has a brain injury, and she developed something called, um, oh, darn, it's, it's like dyslexia, but it's, it's with numbers, acalculia, uh, it's called acalculia, and so what happens is, all of a sudden, anything quantifiable, like numbers or time or anything, um, she, she can't, it's like, like, you can't read, but you can't understand quantities and time. So, anyways, that really messes up her life. And she kind of spirals into despair. And one, time, one day she's twirling on a merry-go-round. And for some reason, just the spinning, the fast spinning for a, temp- for a little bit of time, everything is right in her head. And she can understand numbers and time. And so she, she really thinks that that's going to save her. And so she follows this 
this, this playground is dismantled and it's sent down to this um, place in Georgia and she follows it and it's a carnival, this man who restores carnival rides and she falls in love with his son and she finds out that she really is okay um, in the long run. It's kind of a silly book. I mean, it's not the greatest and, and that's why I never really had it published or wanted to, but it's, it's, it, it has good bones. You know, it has good bones. And it, it's so. about redemption. It's about finding yourself. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's about finding yourself, exactly. Um, it's called Chasing the Merry-Go-Round, which I think was pretty funny. Yeah. Play on words. I love, I love <laughs> the title. Well, Kathy, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate your writing, and I can't wait to read your next novel, which I hope gets the publisher you want. But... Um, do you have any clothing? I, so. I think No, I think that every time you write something, like I was saying about, you know, chasing the mirror around, it was my first attempt. It was kind of like a, a learning piece, you know. And then the mm-hmm. second one was pretty good, I'd say. I think it's a really good story, The Summer Girl. And possibly this last one, the third one that, that I'm going to be writing is, you know, what, what the market is looking for. I mean, I really would like to be published, and it is going to be some some somewhat of commercial fiction you know it's, it's not going to be a literary piece it's going to be you know a story that wants i want to entertain people but yet you know i'm, I'm hoping that it'll be the one really <laughs> i hope so too because this one certainly entertained it was a page turner but it also taught you things along the way so to me that's, mm-hmm. that's the best of both worlds any yeah co- i've had a lot of positive um feedback on this by adults, you know, a lot of people say, I think it's a great story. I couldn't put it down, and um, I've sold quite a few copies. So I'm actually very pleased at how it turned out. I really am. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, Just, you know, read as much as you possibly can. I know now in this current state of affairs we're in with the pandemic and all people do have time to do that sort of thing probably more than they did in the past. Um, Certainly, you know, read as much you can as you can of anything that you can get your hands on, including local papers like the Altamont Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. <laughs>